What's up, everybody? Welcome to Breaking Biotech. My name is Matt, and thank you all for being with me here today. If you want to help me out, you could do so by liking or subscribing to the channel, and you can also help me by commenting or leaving me a review at wherever you listen to this podcast. So we have an exciting show for you today. I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk about these companies here, and the one we're going to focus on, though, is Ameren. And we recently heard that they got FDA approval, finally, for the label expansion, so I'm going to get into a lot of details of that. And I'm also going to touch on a bunch of companies that happen to have had updates at Ash as well as just after Ash. So we're going to do all of that. And I originally had a talk ready to go for Exact Sciences, which is actually a pretty cool company. So for anybody who's interested in that, just pay attention to the next video where I'm going to do a bit of a focus on that. But yeah, it's been a good couple weeks. I'm a little bit sick, so everybody bear with me as I get through the the entire talk today. But it still should be a good one. So. If we jump right into it, the first company I want to talk about is Bluebird, as well as their collaborator here, Bristol Myers. And we heard that they announced positive top-line data from their pivotal phase two karma study of Indicel in relapse and refractory multiple myeloma. So this is a CAR-T therapy that's targeting the BCMA receptor, which is exclusively expressed on B cells, and it happens to be upregulated in multiple myeloma. So this is a, a new CAR-T therapy that's coming out there, and they do—they are going to probably be the first to market. So it was really exciting to see their phase two data here. And what we saw was in about 140 patients, I think, the objective response rate was 73.4 with 31.3 com complete responders, an average duration of response of 10.6 months, and an average progression-free survival of 8.6 months. So the higher dose patients obviously did a little bit better here, but... We didn't see the stock uh, respond too well to this, and I think people just had higher expectations, and also because we saw a lot of competitors and their data. Specifically, we saw a CAR-T therapy from J&J, &J, as well as some bispecific data from other companies out there. So um, Bluebird's eventually going to have to face this competition eventually, but I think as a first-to-market therapy, they're going to be pretty, um, pretty well adopted. In terms of safety, they were pretty much in line with other CAR-T therapies. They, they had minimal, I would say, um, cytokine response syndrome of a very high grade, as well as neurotoxicity at a very high grade, and by that I mean grade 3 or higher. But of any grade, cytokine response syndrome was in like 83.6% of patients. So pretty typical, but it is nice to see finally them come out with this kind of data. So now if they register this with the agencies, this would be their second therapy that's now approved and ready to treat patients with. So that's, uh, that's good news. Moving on, though, I wanted to talk about Fate Therapeutics. And I had them in my eyesights the last month or so because I noticed their stock was getting absolutely killed in the market. I think the, the handle that they were trading at was around 13. And uh, just out of nowhere, and I should have paid attention to see what kind of data they were going to release at ASH, and I didn't really expect this, but... The stock went back up to like 18, 19, and I think today it's trading in 20 and change. So definitely missed that, but congrats to anybody who was buying at those levels. And they released data from three of their products. their FT516, FT500, and FT596. The 596 was just preclinical data, even though this product is probably going to be very interesting because it's an INK cell that's got three different modifications to it. But because it's preclinical, I'm not going to focus too much on that. But the data that they showed was in their INK program. So the theory behind what Fade's trying to do is this off-the-shelf 
CAR NK cell program. So rather than CAR T, it's these NK cells that they've differentiated from a master bank of induced pluripotent cells. So in this way, it's a bit cheaper to do because they don't need each cancer patient to come in and give their blood, and then they have to go through all of these processes to generate that those cells. Um, rather than that, they're just going to be able to thaw the product that's already been in existence and, and give that to the patient. So it's going to be cheaper and it'll be quicker to treat the patients as well. So for FT500, which is really just a, a phase one study with their boring just INK cell, um, they saw no toxicity, no cytokine release syndrome, or neurotoxicity, or graft-versus-host disease. So this is actually pretty good and, and obviously a big improvement from the already existing CAR-T therapies that have a lot of issues associated with these side effects. So that was nice. And then with FT516, they showed us data on one AML patient that showed no signs of leukemia 42 days later. And this FT516, has a it's an INK cell, but it has a modification with a high affinity non-cleavable CD16. This allows the INK cell to be more cytotoxic with its uh, effective function. So, so I was surprised to see the stock rally so hard off of this data, but I think any sort of validation of the idea of using a, an off-the-shelf product is going to get a lot of excitement. So it's, uh, it's good to see that. I'm going to continue to watch them. I'm not going to take a position now because I think a lot of the hype has already been generated, but um, it's nice to see them with uh, with some positive data here. The next company I wanted to talk about is Precision Biosciences. The ticker is DTIL. And they are a CAR-T company that's been on my list for a while of companies to look at, but I just haven't had the time. And they presented some phase one clinical trial data evaluating their CAR-T candidate called PBCAR0191. And they're doing this in relapse or refractory non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or B-cell precursor ALL. And what they saw was in their small trial, an objective response rate of 66% in NHL, or an objective response rate of 33%, one out of three in the B-cell precursor ALL. So I don't think the market was too satisfied with this. I think they were expecting a lot more patients to come out as responders. The safety wasn't too bad. We saw that three out of nine patients had a grade one or two cytokine release syndrome, which is a lot better than the previously existing CAR-T therapies. Um, but I think what people were expecting is data that was better, much better than the already existing therapies that are in clinical trials. And the one in particular is this JCAR017 that I think Juno is developing. So the, the stock originally, before this data release, was on this skyward trajectory towards 20 bucks, and I think it fell fell below 10 but it's slowly creeping up again. So I think I'm going to do a deeper look into them because they definitely have potential, but this data here didn't seem to impress too much. The next company I want to talk about is Kodiak, ticker sign KOD, and the reason for this really is only because I did that presentation on wet AMD and diabetic retinopathy, and KOD has a an anti-VEGF antibody biopolymer conjugate that they will inject into the eye that allows preservation of vision. And what we saw in the news in the last couple of weeks was that the Baker Bros advisors purchased a capped 4.5% royalty on net sales of their biopolymer conjugate. This would be paid upon marketing approval in exchange for $225 million. So this is uh, this is an interesting bet that Baker Bros are making. And we've seen that in the last year or two, they've done a really good job of making a lot of money in biotech. So people were obviously very excited about that and the stock rallied quite a bit on that news. I think it's finally hovering around $70. 
Um, and like I said in my video, I think you could make a portfolio of all of these companies, really. Clearside, Kodiak, Adverum, Regenix Bio, and uh, you'll really be positioned well for the future of wet AMD. So I think that's still a good idea, but you start to see buy-in from a lot of other other people now who are starting to take notice. So that's KOD. The next thing I wanted to touch on is just M&A in general. So we heard that Merck bought Arcule for their therapies in B-cell malignancies, and that was a price point of $2.7 billion. We also heard that Sanofi bought Synthorix for $2.5 billion, and they have an IL-2 variant for solid tumors. So along with all the optimism that's going on in the sector, we also see a lot of mergers and acquisitions going on. So... I think this is continually fueling the excitement around biotech, and uh, you really love to see that optimism continue. So I think that's, uh, that's good news. We also heard that Sanofi announced that they are leaving the cardiovascular space as well as the diabetes space, and they have been huge players in insulin and modifications around insulin, as well as a variety of different cardiovascular drugs. So to see them really shift away from that and towards cancer is very telling, I think. They're, they're going to be less of a competition for those of us who have equity in other companies, but at the same time, Sanofi could have made an acquisition for one of those companies that, that we might be holding or not. So we're going to miss out on that for sure. But um, it's interesting to see that with all the discussions around insulin pricing, that Sanofi decides to just back out entirely and not even participate. So that's the M&A news that's, uh, that's exciting, and we hope that it continues before the end of the year. And the last company I want to talk about before the feature story today is Sarepta. And what we heard is that Goladirsin is finally now approved by the FDA. And for those who didn't catch my video on this before, Sarepta received a CRL for Goladirsin, and the reasons that they gave were kind of suspicious. One of the reasons had to do with the injection route, and the other excuse was that they had some preclinical data that the FDA was concerned with. These aren't usually pretty convincing reasons to reject a drug outright, and I postulated that it had to do with how easy it was for them to get Edip Learson approved. And I think, given that it seems like it was pretty easy for Sarepta to go ahead and file an appeal here, and then it immediately gets approved only four months later, kind of confirms that, in my opinion. So I'll read from the press release here. After Sarepta received the CRL in August of 2019, they made a formal dispute resolution request as outlined in relevant FDA guidance with support of the review division, the matters raised in the CRL were rapidly evaluated and resolved with Dr. Peter Stein, director of the Office of New Drugs, the OND. OND granted the company's appeal and Sarepta resubmitted its NDA to the review division, which worked expeditiously to review and approve Golodirson. So, you know, there you go. You just have the uh, the FDA quickly snapping up to shape to uh, to help out Sarepta here after they resolve these issues. And uh, to me, this just shows you that the FDA kind of wanted to put on a facade that they were being the stern regulators and keeping keeping business in check here by, you know, issuing the CRL for Sarepta. And then, you know, they just go through the uh, the relevant channels and all of a sudden the, the drug just gets approved. So, you know, it's good for the company, obviously. And hopefully there is a clinical benefit for patients, which I think was the original concern with Edip Learson, and it is a concern with Golodirson too, but they are doing those clinical outcome studies, so hopefully we see some data there that shows that they are really benefiting patients. The other news we heard about, well, not really Sarepta, but this company, WVE, discontinued their drug, Suvodirson, which was an exon-related therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. 
but they discontinued the drug because they weren't able to detect any dystrophin expression in their patients. So this is another uh, potential competitor, and I hadn't really heard of these guys until I heard of the news today, but this is obviously another benefit to Sarepta, who is able to detect uh, dystrophin expression in their patients. So especially with their gene therapy for microdystrophin, which is one of Sarepta's exciting products that they're doing. So that's, uh, that's Sarepta. And let's get to the top story of today, which is Amarin. And what we heard on Friday, December 13th, was that Vasipa has become the first and only FDA-approved medication for reducing cardiovascular risk beyond cholesterol-lowering therapy in high-risk patients approved for the treatment. So they finally got the nod from the FDA, and here's what the label is. So I'm going to read directly from the press release. They say, after more than a decade of development and testing, and actually, as an aside, you should all check out my video on Amarin where I go through the details, the painstaking details of what Amarin had to go through in dealing with the FDA here. But after 10 years, Vasipa is now the first and only drug approved by the FDA as an adjunct to maximally tolerated statin therapy to reduce the risk of myocardial infarction, stroke, coronary revascularization, and unstable angina requiring hospitalization in adult patients with elevated triglycerides, which means equal or greater than 150 milligrams per deciliter, and established cardiovascular disease or diabetes mellitus, and two or more additional risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So there you have it. That's the label expansion. And uh, they're going to be able to say that it can reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, but the label is limited at patients with triglycerides of 150 mg per deciliter, and they also have to have either CVD or DM. And then they also have to have these risks of cardiovascular disease. So to me, I think this doesn't limit the patient population too much, and what I'm going to do now is go through what I think the probable maximum number of patients that they can treat with this therapy is. And I also wanted to mention that they increased their net revenue guidance for 2019 to a range of 410 to 425 million. And they're now guiding a projected range of 650 to 700 million dollars in 2020. So I'm going to also touch on that a little bit later. So that's the label. And it's not the best we could have expected. We were really hoping for that 135, but it's not the worst either. They could have been up to 200 milligrams per deciliter, which would have been, I think, uh, I think disappointing for a lot of people. But basically, given this, here's where we're at. The U.S. diabetes mellitus population is 26 million people, and of those, about 40% of them have triglycerides of above 150 mg per deciliter, and those are the same patients that are using statins. Now, on the cardiovascular disease side, if you look at the 2019 AHA heart and disease stroke statistics, you'll see here that the prevalence of CVD comprising of coronary heart disease, heart failure, stroke, and hypertension in adults 20 years of age or higher is 48% overall. So that is 121.5 million patients in 2016, so it's probably a little bit higher now. And this increases in age with both males and females. And then they also write here that it's estimated that about half of all Americans have at least one of the three well-established key risk factors for CVD, which is high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and smoking. Now, amongst that 121.5 million, we can extrapolate from that that among statin users, who are probably the people in this category here, the prevalence of those with triglycerides of above 150 milligrams per deciliter is around 31.6%. 
and also you can look at all of my facts. I'm going to put all the, the paper references that I took these from on the notes. So definitely go ahead and look at those and check them yourself if you'd like to. Then the last thing that I wanted to look at is the overlap between the diabetes patients and the cardiovascular disease patients. And what it looks like is that CVD affects 32.2% of all persons with type 2 diabetes mellitus. So I use that as well as a guide. What we're left with is that there's 10.4 million diabetics who qualify, 38.4 million cardiovascular disease patients, total is 48.8 million, and then I assume an overlap of these patients of 32.2, which leaves us a final U.S. population of 33.1 million people that I think Ameren could target as reasonably likely to be prescribed Vasipa and could probably gain a big benefit from them. Regarding the two or more additional risk factors, I think it's kind of assumed I would, and I'm, I'm taking a bit of a leap of faith here, but really the risk factors for cardiovascular disease, they range from, you know, smoking and diet all the way to age and family history. So I think that the overlap in people who have triglycerides of above 150 and have cardiovascular disease already or diabetes probably already have two or more of these existing risk factors. So I'm not even including that in this analysis, and I do think it's pretty accurate. So let's look at my simplified revised Ameren model. And I've talked about this a few times, and please, everybody, this is just a simplified version of a model that I consider to be reasonably accurate. And there's multiple assumptions that go into it. You can really plug in a variety of different numbers and come out with whatever kind of answer you want. For me, this kind of made sense, and this is what I'm going off of. So if their peak penetration is only 10% of the U.S. market, it's around 3.3 million patients of the 33.1 million, that would give us a peak sales of around 5.3 billion with prescriptions of around 40.5 million because that's one prescription a month for all of these patients. This would give us a net present value given a certain discount rate of $10.8 billion or $30.9 a share given the number of shares that are outstanding today. And this is also assuming a certain amount of R&D increase, a certain amount of sales and administration increase every year, with a loss of exclusivity at 2029 when Tiva comes out on the market with a generic, which I think is the still the, uh, the underlying assumption that we have. So what this also assumes is that there's a couple years of around 70% growth year over year, and I think it's doable. The guidance that Ameren gave, I think they undercut it a little bit, and I think that's par for the course, but the range of 650 to 700 million, I think is a bit lower than what they're going to actually see. And I think following the potential approval in Canada as well as Europe, we could see that growth only continue even more and more, especially with word of mouth once patients start taking it and they start noticing that their numbers are looking really good now. So. Um, some of the risks associated with, with this company entirely is that there's still patent litigation going on. So as that resolves in the years to come, I think the, the price will either approach my target price of around 31, or it'll continue to stay where it is around, I think it opened on December 16th at around 22 or something. It'll probably stay around there. But there's also some competitors coming on the market. Acosti has a phase three trial results that are going to come out in the next month or two. So that, you know, Ameren is still going to be the uh, the only company that's done a CVOT as of yet. So I still think that they're going to have the most potential in this market. We also have risks of Canadian approval as well as European Medicines Agency approval. And I think that once those come in, the stock will slowly begin to creep up to its uh, to the valuation that I have here. 
We've also seen some upgrades and some kind of downgrades, but I, I did notice one that I haven't talked about because it's related to uh, mergers and acquisitions, but Goldman Sachs gave a $42 price target for a buyout, which is in line with other buyouts of certain companies in, in the space, and I think this is kind of reasonable. Um, but again, I don't talk about M&A too much because I find it's difficult to predict which company would and wouldn't get acquired, but I think Ameren does have that potential here, so we shouldn't ignore it. But that's where I'm at with Ameren. I personally have not sold any shares. I think I have around 200 shares, and my cost basis is in the mid-teens. So I'm pretty happy with that, and given that the I think they sandbagged the guidance for next year, once the prescription numbers start to come in, we're going to see that it's being adopted more than Ameren is expecting, and I think the price of the stock is only going to increase based off of that. So that's where we are now. Following up to the rest of this week and next week, there's continuing impeachment drama. We've finally seen the articles of impeachment, which I don't really think is an important um, market thing. But if Trump were impeached and uh, removed from office, you know, that, that might be more of a risk. But I don't think he's going to get removed from office. We're also going to see follow-up to the trade deal continually. I think phase one is finally, finally, finally kind of complete. And we continue to hear them talk about that. But uh, I don't know. I don't know if we'll see it done this year. But... Let's, uh, let's continue to watch those headlines. Now, I have my list of companies to look at, and I've now touched on a few of them. So Precision Biosciences, I have to do a deeper look into because I really only scratched the surface with their ASH data. Arenia, we actually saw some Phase 3 data, and I made a little bit of money off that, but I'm still holding the call spread that's going to get closed out at the end of this week. And then Exact Sciences, I'm probably going to touch on in my next video, so stay tuned for that. To give a slight portfolio wrap-up, and I know we're kind of midweek now, so it's not very useful, but this is based off of Friday, December 13th. And what I've done so far is I took some of Amune off the table here. I think that there's a possibility that it could be a sell-the-news event for Amune, so I'm a little concerned. I announced on Twitter that I took a position in ClearSide at $1.66, and it closed earlier in the week at around $2.22, so I'm happy with that, but I'm going to keep holding. Uh, I sold Global Blood at $70.38. I'm happy with that trade. And here's Ameren as of Friday, and I know they went down a little bit this week, but it's looking at around 30 to 35% in the green, so that's good. So overall for the year, I'm sitting at around 15%, which is very good. I'm very happy with that. I know it's not coming in line with a lot of the other indices that are doing really well. And if you had have asked me at the beginning of the year, I would not have predicted that the S&P 500 would be at 25% year-to-date, as well as the XBI at like 35% year-to-date. So it's a very impressive move that they made. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you all so much for watching. Please like, subscribe, or tell a friend. Also leave me a review, and that would be awesome. And with that, we'll see you next time. Bye.